Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the University of East Anglia, in collaboration with the Century Center for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Coordinator at the Center for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are in discussion with Dr. Ra Mason, Sasakawa Lecturer in International Relations and Japanese Foreign Policy at the University of East Anglia, who will introduce us to the dynamic and nuanced world that is Japan's international relations. Hello Ra, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, We'd like you to start off by introducing us to your field and telling us how you got into the international relations in the first place. Good morning. Thank you very much for um, inviting me onto the podcast. So um, in terms of how I got into the field, I actually started off um, as a coordinator for international relations, which is part of the the JET program, which was a program designed primarily to send English teachers to Japan to internationalize Japan. Um, but one part of that uh, was a particular role known as a coordinator for international relations, um, which was a very kind of mixed bag of everything from uh, cooking to interpreting to uh, guiding people around tourist sites. Um, so it was a, a very kind of unusual role. And people would often say to me, particularly uh, beyond the kind of immediate circle of the city office, where I said, what does international relations mean? Um, And I actually didn't know. Uh, It was in my job title, but I didn't really know what international relations was. Certainly didn't know what it was as a discipline. Um, But that was really the starting point that got me into it, got me thinking about it, um, you know, beyond the kind of obvious mass media type stuff of, of leadership and presidents and prime ministers and, and so forth. So then when I, I finished that role and I, I came back to the UK and I was wondering what to do next, I thought it would be interesting to go back into research and education. And that took me back out to Japan. And at that point, I was able to study the discipline of international relations formally. And it just snowballed from there. A very uh, interesting way of getting into it, I suppose, definitely. Now, if you could briefly give us a summary of Japanese politics in the 20th century before we lead on some more detailed questions, that would be much appreciated. (laughs) Sure. So so just a a brief summary. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Japanese politics in the 20th century obviously incorporates a lot. Um, But if we had to kind of briefly sum up some of the key points, then first of all, the descent in the early part of the century from what was the nascent beginnings of a liberal democratic state, what's often termed Taisho democracy under the Taisho era, um, up until a kind of mid-1920s, really, then how that disintegrated because of the underlying power structures and 
the kind of enduring legacy of feudal families and the elite members of Japanese society and their relationship both to each other and the national identity of the emperor, and how that then kind of capitulated in turn to militarism, which is what took place in the really the post great Kanto earthquake era, so post-1923. Um, and we see that escalate through the 1930s into outright militarism and conflict. So particularly the Second Sino-Japanese War, the War of Aggression on mainland Asia, which includes both the continued dominance of the Korean Peninsula, which became a, a Japanese colony from effectively a Japanese colony from 1910. Um, and then large parts of China through the late 1930s as as we saw kind of horrific expansion into China in a very brutal way, culminating in events like the, the rape of Nanking um, and the destruction of many of China's coastal cities. So that was really the, the first half, if you like, of, of Japan's politics in the in the 19 or for, during the 19th uh, century, transferring into the 20th century. That was what Japan kind of exercised as its national policy, which was expansion and aggression and the aggrandizement of power. Then, obviously, the capitulation in World War II. So that really fed into um, events that took place in the 1940s, um, which was often kind of or is often summarized or summed up from the, the attacks on Pearl Harbor in 1941 but which really takes the form of that, that sense of power that Japan had, that confidence at the national level that came from victories against um, China, Russia, and domination of the, the Korean Peninsula. That led to overconfidence, if you like, and then the complete obliteration of that dream of, of a grand Japanese empire at the hands of the Allied powers, particularly the, the United States, um, and then ultimately the Soviet Union, as well as it entered the Second World War, the Pacific War at the very end of the war um, and came down and pushed back against Japanese forces in Manchuria. So complete obliteration. And then really the second half is the rebuilding process. So Japanese politics were reformed and they were reformed in a formation which allowed them to both sustain very effective long-term economic growth and rebuild the nation of Japan in a form that allowed greater societal participation and allowed greater prosperity, but also pivotally, which allowed it to, in effect, refinance and repay large loans and um, huge sums of money that were invested in Japan, particularly by American investors in the pre-war era. So lots of Japan's post-war political developments, including the establishment of its long-term um, ruling party, the LDP, were based around a new alliance with the United States, um, which was initially a United States-imposed alliance, but which increasingly became a very um, kind of mutually beneficial relationship and one which we've seen right up until the present day. 
And that alliance through the Cold War um, became the bedrock of Japanese politics. And Japan became very much a, a Western power located in the East and was even referred to as things like um, America's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Western Pacific and these kind of terms. So a power that emerging from World War II could have gone either way. It could have become communist. It could have become capitalist. It could have tried to take a middle line in some neutral form, very much ended up in the capitalist camp um, and aligned itself with the United States. And it has remained that way. And the politics has been based around, initially was based under Yoshida Shigeru around the separation of politics and economics that allowed Japan to not focus on military spending, which gave it um, the opportunity to develop its economic relations and rebuild relations with other Asian states. And then we've seen in the very, very recent past, really in the post-Cold War, and particularly in the under the Abe administration, the current administration, we've seen an attempt to move out of that post-war model of separating politics and economics to now something which represents or reflects much more um, a so-called normal power. That's to say a regular, independent, um, middle power state with normal military capabilities, as well as a more normal international role in areas like diplomacy and trade. Thank you for that uh, summary of 20th century international politics. From the picture you've painted us, we can see that Japan is very much caught up in a rather bit of a global tangled mess in that sense with uh, hostile relations historically with its closest neighbours to being caught up in the uh, global Cold War that came later in, in the 20th century. Um, so with all this in mind, let's move on to our first uh, international relations case study. How do you think Japan should respond to China? Sure. I mean, it's a very important question. And I think it's often a mistakenly pitched question in the sense that particularly in mainstream media and to a certain extent in mainstream academia, this question is asked as if Japan has a choice. Um, but these are very dynamic relations, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware. So so Japan is responding to China. Right. Um, and this is kind of often the, the 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 root cause of the miscasting of the question, if you like, in the fact that there's an idea that somehow Japan is in a static position and it can go one way or another. Japan is totally reliant upon China economically. Um, but it also has to be wary of the fact that China is growing exponentially as a military power. And so what it has to do, I think, is to make sure that it doesn't frame its relations with China as one of rivalry in which somehow it has to contain a rising China and reinforce its, uh, particularly its territorial, its maritime territorial boundaries in places like the East China Sea vis-a-vis -vis China and make that the, if you like, the headline of the relationship. What it needs to do is to continue to fortify those areas to a limited extent, but to keep that as low a profile as possible and to continue to work with China in areas where it has made 
substantial gains. Places like or, or areas such as the Belt and Road Initiative um, and international trade agreements such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, whereby, for example, Japan is effectively taking over leadership from China in the in the former case, whereby without having to, again, officially announce this, which might be damaging to China's um, international prestige, Japan is actually able to pick up the slack for a, a number of Belt and Road projects, for example, across Southeast Asia, where China has failed to effectively implement those infrastructure projects or those investment projects and needs help from another external partner. Japan is well placed, um, even in the in the current kind of economic crisis, Japan is relatively well placed to assist China inadvertently or indirectly in actually furthering the Belt and Road Initiative. And by so by doing so, improving the bilateral relations between those two countries. And then in areas like Trans-Pacific Partnership, where Japan is seeming to be rivaling China, again, there are actually a number of, of, of means by which Japan can incorporate a kind of greater Pacific rim in trade and to a certain extent, diplomatic relations, but it can also help to assist or facilitate Chinese investment in those areas. So it doesn't have to be pitched, for example, as a competition between the Trans-Pacific Partnership led by Japan versus China's um, for Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank or whatever other institutions China creates and, and dominates. So I think it's very important to make a distinction between what's actually going on on the ground and how that is presented internationally. Because as we know, particularly in East Asia, prestige and the appearance of international um, image, for want of a better word, is very important to the to the national executives of these countries. So that needs that relationship needs to be managed very carefully whilst pushing ahead with lots of practical interaction that actually benefits both states. So I think that uh, particularly hostile political rhetoric tends to get the limelight in international media. So uh, with what's just been said, do you think that there's that's more bluster and there's more attempts of working together than people often see in the media? Well, well this is the interesting fact about it. So there is a sense in which it is exactly as you outline. There, there is a bluster which doesn't match the reality of what's going on in any of these practical areas, um, including, you know, politics, economics and security. But there is also what we, what we would call a performative process which takes place, whereby that bluster actually feeds over, if you like. It actually rolls over into policy making. So in other words, if you keep casting China as, a, as an enemy as a, or as a hostile power, then, then it becomes interpreted as such and various actors on the ground begin to act differently. So there is there is an, a danger to that bluster. It's not the case that we're just running along where we've got bluster on the one hand and we can ignore it because really everything is fine at the practical level. The blustering and the brinkmanship damages certain areas of, of trade and other, and other relationships in specific locations or in specific agreements 
or in areas of, de of development such as in and around the Senkaku Islands, for example. So, you know, it, it does matter how that bluster is pitched. So that does need to be toned down. I'm sure we could do a whole episode about Japan and China, but we'll have to move on to the next neighbours. How should Japan improve relations with either or both of the Koreas? Yeah, this is also an important question. Um, in the case of North Korea, it's very problematic. North Korea is a buffer state. So as long as it remains the case that North Korea is both impoverished, entirely reliant upon China for economic support and positioned between American troops in South Korea and Chinese troops on the, the northern side of its border, north of the Yellow River, North Korea is almost certainly going to be at least in effect an enemy state of Japan. That's because Japan is a close ally of the United States and the United States and China are effectively maintaining North Korea as a buffer between those two forces uh, between themselves. So it's almost impossible to imagine Japan going out on a limb um, and normalizing relations with North Korea if the American administration is still hostile to North Korea, and particularly if the American administration is still in a rival state position with China. That's the structural dynamic. And to play into that, in South Korea's case, South Korea is also a close ally of the United States. So that even more makes the, the closing of North Korea-Japan relations difficult or the improving of those relations. And that was always the case historically that Japan took its lead from South Korea and from US-South Korea relations. So there was, there was the so-called Benke policy, which is the, the linkage policy of, of uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Japan, which would always align its North Korea policy with that of South Korea and, and the United States. So not really a great deal, you know, not a great deal has really changed in that fundamental dynamic, although there's been small piecemeal changes. In terms of South Korea-Japan relations, um, these have deteriorated rapidly in recent years because of historical issues um, and territorial issues, particularly the issue of forced sexual slavery and forced labour um, by Japan against South Korean workers and against South Korean women, primarily um, in the case in the, in the case of um, sexual slavery. Um, these two issues have come to the fore and that has become so extreme that it's soured political relations. There's not really a great deal that can be done, I think, to be to be fair to Japan. It has issued multiple apologies. It has um, signed multiple agreements, and even its very right-leaning Abe Shinzo-led current administration has been fairly conciliatory, or at least very measured in its responses to quite vociferous South Korean protests. So I think Japan can do very little other than sit out and wait for um, administrative change in South Korea, and then try to re-engage with, with that relationship. Is there no way that their shared strong alliance with America could be used as a common ground for reconciliation? Um, it, is, it is a common ground for reconciliation in, in some respects, um, but we've actually seen to the point um, of some military agreements, particularly, for example, the information sharing agreement being 
reneged on by South Korea in in relation to sharing information with Japan, despite the fact that that is an agreement which affects trilateral trilateral relations between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. So, quite surprisingly, South Korea has been willing to resist the improvement of relations with Japan, or at least to defend its its very kind of angry position against Japan, despite the fact that the United States has implored both sides to to rebuild the relationship and particularly has attempted to put pressure on South Korea to to be less aggressive in its response towards Japan. Um, So in theory, yes, and in practice, to a certain extent, that trilateral relationship still works. But you also have to bear in mind that the United States in the post-war era, going right back to the early stages of the the Bretton Woods system and the the strategic um, system of of security that the United States runs in the Asia-Pacific, the United States runs a hub and spokes system, which means even when it has two alliance partners, such as in the case of South Korea and Japan, it does not require them to be allied themselves. And that's quite a deliberate form of leadership by the United States up until the current time. And so that also in some ways weakens that that fundamental need to have the have trilateral al- alignment. And so this leads on to our next question quite nicely. Um, how close should Japan stick to its alliance with the United States? Yeah, I think it's somewhat deceptive at the moment when we look at uh, US Japan relations in the sense that in recent weeks and months, the Trump administration has been very forthright in demanding that Japan increase its financial contributions to the relationship, particularly through things like host nation support, um, demanding supposedly demanding that Japan, for example, pay pay up to four times more than it currently already pays um, to host United States troops. Um, you know, and, and if you think of the, the backlash in places like Okinawa versus the, the need to pay host nations for as it stands, the idea that Japan should do even more to pay to have American military presence seems quite outrageous from certain perspectives from within Japan. However, I have to say, um, gauging from Japan's responses, that what it is is intending at the moment is to position itself well for what it presumes will be a new incoming U.S. administration. So we would at the current time, we would have to predict that we'll see a, a Democratic president that's a Democrat Party president in the United States by the end of the year. And Japan, you know, is in a position where it can re-strengthen that alliance with a new U.S. leadership, but also it can do it in a more independent form. So I think what Japan will be trying to do is to use that transition in the United States as an opportunity to allow it to to position itself in a more independent form vis-a-vis the United States, but to retain the strength of the alliance. Now, you mentioned Okinawa earlier. Um, How do Japan's domestic politics affect its international relations? 
a great deal is the simple answer to that. Um, from an Okinawan perspective, sadly, not as much um, as many in Okinawa would like. Okinawa is a good example of how Japan's central authorities, particularly the so-called Iron Triangle of big business, the bureaucracy and the LDP, work as an Iron Triangle to really resist any outside influence from other parties or other regions. And Okinawa is a great example of that going all the way back to its its independent history as, as an independent state and then its colonization by Japan. Um, but more generally, domestic politics affect its international relations a lot, but mostly within the LDP. And we have to remember that the LDP is, although famous as being this very kind of stable um, and legitimate political force through a long period of, of post-war Japanese history going back to 1955, in fact, this is a party that was set up by fairly far right of centre individuals, including the current prime minister's um, grandfather, Kishinovsky, um, the CIA, mafia um, linked actors and slush funds provided by the Americans and other big business uh, interests in Japan and the United States. So. This is not a party with very um, wholesome roots, shall we say. And it is a party which is really just a loose affiliation of the different power interests from within Japan. What that means in terms of influence to its international relations is that it is staunchly anti-communist in its, in its origins. And by kind of succession of that, um, quite right leaning and over time has moved what seemed like a middle ground, a centre ground, quite a long way to the right. So what is now the mainstream of the LDP is a lot further to the right than it was through large sections of the, of the post-war era, mm. as those, you know, those factions have come to dominate. And so what that means is that we have a situation where there is far less resistance within the domestic political arena to things like constitutional revision or to the promotion of Japan having a more independent diplomatic or security role and also to acting more um, proactively in both its immediate surrounds and further overseas in places like the Horn of Africa um, or Southeast Asia than has been the case. And this is a very incremental process. And it's not a, a linear process. It's a very wavy process. But it means that Japan's overall domestic political direction, um, because of its domestic, domestic political interest, is pushing Japan away from this kind of international identity of pacifism and, um, if you like, separation of, of politics and economics towards a much more normalized, proactive, normal military power in the international arena. So many more questions I could ask from that, but we have to move on, I'm afraid. What, if any, difference will COVID-19 make to Japan's foreign policy? I think it will make very little difference to Japan's overarching foreign policy. We've seen some small practical changes 
So, for example, it's now much more difficult um, as a non-Japanese resident to enter Japan. Um, we've seen Japan, like other states, be quite insular and, and protectionist in that respect, effectively closing its, its borders. Um, so these are small, short-term changes. In terms of the bigger picture, I don't really see why it would make a, a huge difference. The only possible reason that, that might turn out to be significant is the economic shock of COVID-19. And that, that certainly could result in budget cuts to, to certain areas, including things like ODA and FDI, that's Official Development Assistance and Foreign Direct Investment. So that could influence the extent to which it engages with some international projects, the extent to which it invests or, or invests heavily in new projects. And also it might affect things like military spending and the areas of military spending that it, that it invests in. Um, but I think the overall trajectory will not be dramatically affected by COVID-19. Thank you for joining us today, Ra. But just before we finish the episode, um, can you tell us about any research projects you're currently engaged in so we know what to look for in future? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm currently involved in um, researching UK-Japan relations, um, particularly in terms of UK-Japan security relations. That's one area that could be very interesting going forward as the, U the UK pulls out of the European Union um, and Japan finds itself in this very kind of dynamic international environment. I'm also researching the ongoing relationship between Japan and North Korea, which is a little more static. Um, and I'm also examining the role of Okinawa in that layered security environment that we, we talked about just a moment ago. Lots to look forward to then. Thank you for joining us today, Ra. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. You can find links to Ra's research projects in the description below. If this episode has given you an appetite for politics and diplomacy, you can join Ra at the cutting edge of Japanese foreign policy on our UMA in Interdisciplinary Japanese Studies. Search uea.ac.uk forward slash cjs for more information. Join us next week, where we will be in discussion with Dr. Raynham Dennison, Senior Lecturer in Film, Television and Media Studies at the University of East Anglia on Anime in the Arts. Thank you for listening.